Blog Talk Radio. We assembled here today are issuing a new decree to be heard in every city, in every foreign capital, and in every hall of power. From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land. From this day forward, it's going to be only America first. America first. Every decision on trade, on taxes, on immigration, on foreign affairs will be made to benefit American workers and American families. We must protect our borders from the ravages of other countries making our products, stealing our companies, and destroying our jobs. Protection will lead to great prosperity and strength. I will fight for you with every breath in my body, and I will never, ever let you down. I am your voice. So to every parent who dreams for their child, and every child who dreams for their future, I say these words to you tonight. I am with you, I will fight for you, and I will win for you. To all Americans tonight, in all of our cities, and in all of our towns, I make this promise. We will make America strong again. We will make America proud again. We will make America safe again. And we will make America great again. God bless you and good night. I love you.
Uh, I saw it. He did very well. He was campaigning for Ron DeSantis, uh, which Ron DeSantis is going to win Florida by a landslide, and that's going to be great leadership for Florida because, as we know right now, the rhino, Rick Scott in Florida, just took away uh, people's guns and is starting the confiscation process. He's already succeeded with 4,500 residents in Florida. So uh, the fact that Ron DeSantis is getting in there and going to, you know, protect the Second Amendment is very pivotal and important. Um, You know, that's that's a big thing, obviously, that, uh, you know, is going to help the state of Florida and that obviously worries a lot of people is what Rick Scott's doing right now. That's breaking news today of him confiscating guns. Um, President Trump, though, speaking at the rally, uh, I mean, it's all a huge crowd. Um, Everybody was there. I mean, there were thousands and thousands I saw the live videos, even from the outside, lines around the corner, uh, the stadium, you couldn't find a seat. I mean, just packed to the max, Um, you know, and and President Trump has made it clear that he's ready to campaign seven days a week for the midterm Republicans. I mean, we've seen it many times before. Just look at him, uh, you know, the whole cycle. Uh, when he was, uh, you know, campaigning in 2016 for presidency, he would do three or four rallies a day like it was nothing. And uh, the guy would go up on the stage each rally an hour and a half like it's nothing. I mean, the guy's a, a miracle man. The guy's a, the guy's absolutely incredible. Um, but you, you, it's one of those things where he's so committed, he's so dedicated, and we have a lot of great candidates in this. And I, like I've said many times, and I'll say it again, a big red wave is coming. A big red wave. People have woken up. People have woken The Democrats are communists. Uh, the American people know better than to uh, turn blue and go crazy and, and, and turn this place into something like Venezuela or, you know, something so bad like Greece. I mean, we definitely do not want those circumstances. We also see... President Trump is demanding the funding of the wall, otherwise they'll shut down the government, which I think is great, because the Democrats will have no choice, because everybody loses when the government gets shut down, but the Democrats have an agenda they want to get passed, and we know Trump's the best negotiator in this business, in this industry, I mean, in the world. I mean, one of the best ever in the world. I mean, even predicted and said by many people. So the Democrats are going to have to come to some sort of an agreement. Uh, you know, otherwise the government will be shut down uh, because we know that when Trump makes a promise, he sticks with it, and the wall is one of the biggest things, and he's not going to let us down with that. There's no way he is going to let us down with that. Um, I do want to, uh, Josh, your thoughts on Valerie. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, just just to talk a little bit about some of the naysayers on both sides of the aisle that are concerned about Trump, um, you know, being on the road and, and backing all these different, you know, instead of basically they think he's not doing his job as president and he's campaigning for other people. Here's what I'd say to those people. Nothing gets done unless we have a, Repub- a more majority in the Republican Senate. The, you know, the, the majority we have in the House, we, the House has passed, I think what it's. I think it's a couple hundred bills. It's over a hundred bills, and the Senate's passed. I think it's under twenty. Um, it's absolutely ridiculous because because of the divide and because the filibuster, nothing gets done. So that being said, it is extremely important 
that Trump is on the road, and I'm completely okay with it, even if it's taking, even if it does take away from some of his "quote unquote" presidential duties, right? Because without right. this, we, his presidential yeah. duties don't matter. Like, yeah, like this keeping the majority. You're absolutely right, Josh. Keeping the majority is the most important thing. Bottom line, period. Because absolutely, let's face it, the de- you know, the Democrats win. Trump's not going to get a lot done unless he does a bunch of executive orders. Yep, and we don't, I mean, nobody wants that. Um, you know, even, even, I, even though I think the policy would be good, I don't like executive orders. I, I wouldn't like when Trump did executive orders versus when Obama did executive orders versus if Hillary would have done the executive orders. I don't like them. I like when it goes through Congress, but Congress has got to pass bills, and on top of that, the Senate has to pass bills. Is the reason you don't like it because it's a form of dictatorship? Basically, you know, and it's it's not the way that it was it was intended to be. the 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 idea of an executive order has been pulled out. You know, it's not it's not what it was originally meant for. The executive order was ri- originally meant for. I want new drapes for the White House. I'm signing an executive order for us to go buy these things, not to determine policy. Um, right. And, and like I guess I can't remember who it was, but a couple a couple shows ago was talking about how he loves what Trump has done so far with the executive orders because all he's done is get rid of. Obama's bad policy, uh, except for obviously the um, separation of uh, children and parents at the border. But that being said, you know, he's done very well with the executive orders. But the Senate particularly has got to get their ass in gear, and we got to get some more Republicans in there, kick that filibuster out, as well as, you know, McCain. And we got to get over that stuff. We got to start getting his agenda passed, as well as just getting general bills through the Senate. Absolutely. Valerie, go ahead. So I wanted to give my support to Ron DeSantis because um, he is one of the very few that stands out in Congress um, against terrorism. And he has put his money where his mouth is. He's not afraid to stand up and be called whatever names people want to call him because he stands for security. He stands for keeping not only his people in his state, but all Americans safe. And, um, and, and that, has, that also goes with what you guys were just talking about with regard to the fact that the purpose of government is security. If we can't keep our yes. borders safe, if we can't keep our people safe, then what's the point of government at all? And that's the number right. one reason that we elected the president, um, to keep us safe. Um, so not only Ron DeSantis, but also you know, President Trump has been working day and night, you know, to keep this border closed so that, that we can keep our people safe. And uh, I applaud both of them for that. Absolutely. I, I, we're going to get to our special guest here very shortly. I do want to play something very quick, and I want to clear this up for everybody, is that, you know, the whole Manafort thing, uh, you know, the liberals think, you know, this is all uh, going to get Trump in trouble. And what they fail to understand is this is about Manafort's tactics. This has nothing to do with Trump. Liberals are so uh, out of touch. But one, one two, I, I just want to stop because it's been on different fake news channels that uh, Manafort's taking Trump down with them. But this is only about Manafort uh, making $60 million in Ukraine and not paying taxes on it. And there's issues. There's some issues. But uh, here's, the, here's the clip. Government's case against Paul Manafort is expected to focus less on allegations of wrongdoing while he was the Trump campaign chairman and more on allegations that he cheated on his taxes years before. Manafort this morning was taken from jail to the Albert V. Bryan courthouse in a nondescript gray van. 
for these very high-profile proceedings where the special counsel, Robert Mueller's team, alleges that there's about $60 million Manafort earned over the years lobbying or consulting for politicians in Ukraine, including some backed by Russia, that never popped up on a pay stub. The judge in this case, T.S. Ellis, has said in the course of these proceedings that it's his opinion the Mueller team is just using these financial charges, which have nothing to do with the 2016 election, to get Manafort to dish dirt on the Trump campaign. But the judge thought about it and allowed the trial to continue anyway. The Mueller team in this courtroom is led by Andrew Weissman, whose specialties included fraud and organized crime cases at DOJ before the special counsel enlisted his services for this investigation. Manafort's lawyers, meanwhile, made a big stir when they arrived this morning, led by Kevin Downing, who worked for years on the other side as a Justice Department tax case prosecutor. And the, Mueller, or the Manafort team's job is basically to get the jury, which is being selected this morning, to think like President Trump, who has said recently that he feels badly for Paul Manafort, somebody that only worked for his campaign for a few months, but wound up having years and years of his financial records scrutinized by the special counsel, all leading to today. Bill? Thank you, Peter. Peter Ducey starting our coverage there. Thank here's what, here's something that struck me on that, like something that stuck out. Why suddenly did the judge change their mind? And, and B, I mean, it somewhat does make sense if, if he made all that money and, you know, was playing around and not paying taxes that this is a separate issue. But they're, they're, it's kind of a tricky thing. Your thoughts, Josh? Yeah, I mean, here's what I'll say about it. I think it's pretty simple. Uh, you know, if it is if it is to do with his back taxes, I you know I think this is going to be something that's obviously politicized by the left media. But I I hope that this judge, even though I'm assuming it's a it's a liberal judge, because. I guess I'm not. I guess I can't even say I assume that because of the area. It's in, I don't know what area it's in, but you know, I, I I'm hoping that that judge is taking it per the merit of possible tax evasion, which is a legitimate thing that Paul Manafort should be punished for, in my opinion. If he's found to be tax evading, um, that's not a great thing. But if you know, I I don't even see how this ends up affecting Trump. Um, and I think that was, you know, I think it almost hurts that Manafort counsel. Uh, tried to spin uh, it to seem like they're only going after him because of Trump. I I hope they're going after him because they're actually going after him. But it wouldn't surprise me if they're only going after him because of Trump. Because boy, we've we seen it a lot as of late. Uh, you know, like his lawyer right now. Uh, you know, his former lawyer. It's it's what the it's what the media and these left leaning uh, agenda is is pushing, especially when it comes to the judicial side. Uh, so I mean, we'll see what happens with this. But I, I really do hope that this ends up being uh, either completely shut down or it's tax evasion. And I'm assuming, and I'm pretty sure it has nothing to do with Trump either way. No, I, I absolutely hear you. Um, I do want to get your thoughts, Valerie, but I do want to welcome our very special guest, who I'm very excited to welcome to the show, 2018 Massachusetts Independent Senate candidate, inventor of email, doctor, MIT grad, software creator, investor, and entrepreneur, Shiva. And how do I pronounce your last name, sir? I- it's Ayadore. Ayadore. Shiva Ayadore. Like you say, I adore you, but you can say Ayadore. Okay, perfect. <laughs> perfect. Okay, excellent. That's easy to remember. Well, it's great to have you on. Um, we met last week at the Arpaio event. It was a pleasure meeting with you, and we talked about a lot of great things. And 
Um, I mean, what what a background you have. I mean, it's unbelievable. I mean, it's beyond impressive. It's profound as can be. I mean, you're an MIT grad. You're a doctor. You're running against Pocahontas, who's a fake Indian, and you're a real Indian. So, I, you, you know, you've got all these things going for you. you got all these great things. And, you're, and you've also made a lot of money in the tech world and business. Yeah, well, I, you know, I've been very fortunate because, you know, I was born in India, but I was made in America. You know, America is what provided the, um, you know, all the amazing values, particularly, you know, the concept of, um, you know, good laws, you know, the concept of meritocracy, that we are a country yeah. of laws and a country of meritocracy that made that possible. You know, it's interesting. I'm just, fin- it's it's about 1030 here in Massachusetts, and I just finished up dinner, and I, and, um, I, I was looking around, and if we look around, think about all the things that we have in this world, you know. Uh, I mean, we take a lot for granted. Airplane, cars, right? right? Lighting, yeah. right? Um, yeah. You go down the list, infrastructure, TV, radio, all of these were done by innovators, right? Yeah. These were not done by career politicians. Everything we have was done by plumbers, engineers, scientists, uh, innovators, uh, blacksmiths. People actually do stuff, construction workers people who, who, you know, who fund construction. And, and uh, it wasn't done by Hollywood celebrities. It wasn't done by politicians. Everything we have, everything we use, um, from the fact that I'm using this iPhone to, um, you know, the broadcast that you're doing, all of these things were made possible by working people. And for far too long, you know, we've been bamboozled to put a lot of emphasis on celebrities and politicians who actually do nothing. They're leeches. And our campaign in Massachusetts is about renewing the hope that the spirit of America, who actually work for a living, create, get up and do a lot of things, the grunt work. And that's what makes civilizations and countries. So I'm really proud to run, and in fact, very honored to run, and I consider it as a service. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing. And I, you know, I'm so glad that you are. And, you know, you really... You bring so much to the table. And, you know, what I want you to do, Shiva, is I want you to kind of, you know, start with your, you know, your upbringing, your, you know, how it all started for you. That's what I like to, you know, ask all of my guests, you know, how, how from, you know, from, you know, when it started, you know, to, to now, you know, like in between all the, all the adventures, all the, all the amazing things that have occurred throughout your life. Yeah, well, it has been one, one, and it still is an adventure. We're having a lot of fun on this campaign. But my beginning goes back to two, you know, very formative uh, areas. One was growing up in New Jersey among everyday working people, and the other was before that growing up in India among my grandparents um, who were uh, poor village farmers. You know, I grew up in Bombay, but I also spent about a third of my life in a, a, a deep South Indian village. Uh, which yeah. had no electricity, running water, et cetera. So my whoa. grandparents were poor. Hello? Yeah, I said, yeah, so whoa. My grandpa- like, wow. Yeah, so my grandparents were poor farmers. And you have to understand, India has a caste system. And it's um, the caste system is it's not even a class system. It's a caste system, meaning you don't work your way up a class. Family you're born to, your future destiny is determined. So if you were born to a family of janitors, then you were expected to be a janitor. If you're born to a family of coconut pickers, you're supposed to be coconut picker pickers. If you're if you're born to a family of priesthood or Brahmins, 
um, no matter how smart or stupid or lazy you are, you would get anointed mm-hmm. to be that. That's a caste system. So we were considered untouchables or what you would call deplorables in India. And the fact that my parents even made it here is one in a trillion, and they're both incredible people from what they overcame. And uh, so my parents taught me that, you know, we create our own destiny. And that's what the American spirit is about. And so when we came here, we came here in 1970, uh, settled in Patterson, New Jersey, one of the poorest cities in the United States. And this was at a time, this is 1970, I literally left India on my seventh birthday, December 2nd, 1963. When we came here, you have to understand, it's the time of the Vietnam Wars going on. You have a lot of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. This very traditional conservative Indian family comes to America. And, um, you know, I was brought up by my mom that I'd have to work three times harder. She said, look, we're different looking, but America, in India, you could get discriminated ten different ways. And in America, three, the advantage, my mom said, in America, you actually worked hard. Um, Meritocracy was, um, you know, recognized. So obviously I worked my butt off by the time I was 14. And not only did I have lawn mowing jobs, played baseball, I was a very good athlete, but I finished uh, calculus by the ninth grade. My high school had no more classes to offer me in math. I got accepted to a special program at New York University. It was a Navy SEAL type program for computer science. In literally wow. uh, two to three months, we learned seven programming languages, 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. I finished top of the class. And when I finished that, I had some more courses left in high school, but I ended up getting a full-time job 30 miles away in Newark, New Jersey, which is still one of the poorest cities in the country. And there I was mentored by an amazing guy, Dr. Les Michelson, who gave me the opportunity um, to convert. Some of you over the age of 40 may know in the old days in big organizations, the way people communicated was one was through the landline phone. There was no cell phones. And the other was through this mail system, which is called the inter-office mail system. Every secretary had on her desktop, there was a physical desktop, inbox, an outbox, folders. Underneath her desk was a trash can. On her desktop was a typewriter. She'd write a thing called a memo, which had very specific fields, to, from, subject, carbon copy, blind carbon copy. You get the idea? And she would write these things called a memo and stick it in these envelopes, which were uh, twisted up with a little string and put it into a pneumatic tube and it would go out to different offices. This was called the inter-office mail system. So if if I was going to hire you, Rory, I'd write a cover letter, I'd attach your resume and I'd forward it to a bunch of people. They would like write back what they thought about. You would come back to me and then we would make a decision. That's how collaboration took place. And I was asked to convert that entire system. This is in 1978. Now you could send these simple, very simple text messages. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about that entire system. Uh, I wrote 50,000 lines of code as a 14-year-old kid. Um, wow. All that system email, a term never used before in the English language, created the modern system of email. No one had done it. In fact, um, the big lie uh, is the military did it. They didn't. They thought it was impossible to do that. And uh, when, I, when I came to MIT in 81, they, they mentioned this in the front page of the MIT newspaper among three other kids, among the 1,000 students who came in that year. And the president of MIT told me, Shiva, it's unfortunate that you can't patent software because the um, sort of the stupid politicians in Congress didn't even know what software was. They thought it was sheet music. And in 1976, the Copyright Act of 1976 only allowed you to copyright, um, you know, sheet music and novels. 
1980, which I didn't know, I went to MIT in 81, um, the Copyright Act of 1976 was amended to become the Computer Act of 1980, which allowed us to copyright software, not patent it. Um, the Supreme Court wasn't recognizing patents. Anyway, it wasn't an, a simple task of just putting a C with a circle around it. I literally had to send all my 50,000 lines of code in. I did it myself as a 17-year-old kid. And on August 30th, 1982, a young American kid um, in New Jersey got recognized as email. I was issued the I did, long before I came to MIT. Um, the point being, the reason I'm sharing the story is I went to the American process of education and came to MIT, but email was not invented by the military-industrial academic complex. It was invented in New Jersey, in Newark. Um, and by the way, to everyone listening, a 14-year-old boy is the one who invented TV, uh, Philo Farnsworth in Franklin, Idaho. I shared the story because for far too long we've been taught that you know, the military-industrial academic complex is the one that creates all great innovation. It's the biggest lie. Great innovations come from humble people solving real problems. That's where innovation comes from. It doesn't come from you know, funding war. That supports you know, the deep state. So I came to MIT, um, Rory. So the second process I went through was a deeper. You know, the, by the way, you have to remind everyone, we came here legally, legal immigration. Yeah. My parents had to submit their resumes. They had to submit reference letters. Um, it wasn't like they came, you know, came over some border, jumped, uh, jumped the wall or something, you know? And it was a right. privilege to come here. My dad came here with 75 bucks in his pocket, and then we had to wait close to a year. So we waited in line. We were separated from our father, and then we came legally. And uh, so that was a process of immigration and, you know, education. Then I went in and out of MIT um, over multiple years, got four degrees, my undergraduate's in electrical engineering, then became a founding engineer in a company. Um, which we built one of the early presentation graphic systems before PowerPoint, which got then sold to Lotus, which then got sold to IBM, came back to MIT and did two master's degrees, one in mechanical engineering and another in, believe it or not, visual and graphic design. I, I love art and uh, functional yeah. art. And then in the middle of my PhD work, I couldn't get away from email. The White House in 1993, right when the web was taking off, you have to remember, email was first used in the office environment. Um, between 78 to 93, email was basically a business office application. But in 1993, when the web came and it put the graphical user interface on the Internet, um, consumers started using the Internet through the web, the WWW, World Wide Web. And that's when email became a consumer application. So you had Hotmail and Yahoo and the Clinton White House started getting tons of inbound email. I was a graduate, a PhD student at MIT doing a lot of my research in AI and pattern analysis, and the White House ran a contest to see who could automatically characterize, uh, categorize Clinton's email, because you have to understand the way they were handling inbound email at the Senate was they literally had interns reading an email and categorizing it. I probably shouldn't use the word interns along with Clinton, but um, they had emails being categorized manually. And uh, so they were looking for advanced technologies which could read an email and categorize it. Long story short, I ended up winning that contest, left MIT in the middle of my uh, PhD in 1993, and started a company. Um, um, in fact, I was doing a couple of companies uh, called Echo Mail, uh, which became the leading company for all the Fortune 1000 companies in the world to automatically read email, route it, track it. 
and uh, grew that to around $250 million in value, uh, made a ton of money, and then came back to MIT around 2003. One of my advisors said, Shiva, you should finish your PhD. And, um, uh, you know, sort of in, in the closing aspect of my background, I've always had a deep love for medicine. My grandmother was a village shaman, a healer. She had no degrees. 16 hours she would work in the farm, in the fields. But on weekends, 20, 30 people, Rory, would line up and she could observe their face, predict wow. their ailments, and then she would come up with personalized combinations of herbs and yoga exercises. This today we call precision medicine. But she was basing this on India's traditional system of medicine. So I saw a woman with no degrees, with tattoos all over her arms, heal people. And I was very curious how this traditional system of medicine worked. In fact, that I realized that modern medicine, um, many years later, was re- it really came out of wartime medicine. You know, our medical system really came out of crisis management, put a soldier on the field. Eastern systems of medicine were based on prevention, right? Uh, keeping people healthy. Um, uh, and I think you need both. So in 2003, you know, almost 30, 40 years later, um, MIT creates a new department called systems biology. And the challenge was, could you mathematically model diseases using the computer? In fact, could you model uh, the human cell? The, 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 the short of the story is, uh, came back to MIT in 2003, spent five years creating a new technology which could mathematically model the human cell. So if email was the electronic version of the inner office mail system, the new technology I created ending in 2007 allow, allowed us to mathematically model molecular systems. So we have now, wow. that company's worth a couple billion dollars. Uh, we discovered a multi-combination therapy for pancreatic cancer, got it allowed by the FDA in a record 11 months. Uh, we're going after Alzheimer's. We're going after all the diseases. And the way we create medicine in the current way is really, really dumb. Um, it's, it takes way too long and in the medical, the entire medical process, so I know a lot about healthcare. It's completely screwed up. It's about uh, a 50 cents hamburger selling for half a million dollars. We have created a medical system which profits insurance companies, pharmaceutical companies, and big hospitals. So that's my journey. You know, you're still looking at a guy. I mean, I still get up at five in the morning, work until midnight, and uh, I still run a company. I still teach, and I'm running for U.S. Senate, very much in the spirit of the founders of this country. They weren't scumbag politicians. Um, and I use that word scumbag as a technical term. You know, in waste engineering, scum is the top of the septic system that you bag. And that's what most of these politicians are. Uh, <laughs> Franklin, hilarious. Jefferson, um, Washington, these people were amazing people, you know. And we need to raise the standards in this country. Yeah, he, yeah, one, 100%. And I'm, I'm blown away. I'm absolutely blown. I'm blown away. I am like, wow. This is totally absolutely incredible. I mean, Jesus. So, so, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna back up just a little bit. So, so your technology, so your technology company, you, you have something that it, um, you said has been approved uh, that will cure or help pancreatic cancer. Yeah, so what we have is think about we've created a new operating system, a new technology, Rory, yeah. which can mathematically, without the need for model a disease <laughs> on the computer. Yeah. So we have, for example, modeled all the 65 major molecular pathways of Alzheimer's. And using that, see, the way drug development works is 
you test stuff in a test tube for three years, and you catch, and then you kill a bunch of animals for another five years. So now you've spent about eight years, and then you do, then you have to get an allowance by the FDA to go test on humans, and you and you and you spend another seven years testing on humans. So it takes 15 years to create a single drug, and uh, takes around five billion dollars, 13 years. That's why drug companies charge so much because the development costs are so high. So what we're able to do is way before you even do the test tube, like, for example, we don't build an airplane by, you know, doing wind tunnel tests and doing uh, airplanes by throwing a monkey yeah. in, a, in an airplane. Or we, we, everything's done on the computer, right? You literally design the whole airplane on the computer, for that, for that matter, a car. Yeah. We don't do that with drug development. So I've created the technology which allows us to – modeled mathematically a molecular reaction so we could do all the testing and reduce the risk way up front. That's what we've created. And using our technology, we have now spun out seven different companies which are actually developing not only pharmaceutical drugs but also um, doing what my grandmother did, finding combinations of nutraceuticals, supplements, herbs that actually do work. So we can really bring people, create stuff that works without side effects at a lower cost. Less filling tastes great. You know, that's what we're doing. So, so are you, how, how far, I mean, how far along in the process are you? I mean, I, I mean, are you. Oh, we've been doing this for, so 2000, what, 2003 to seven is when I created the technology at MIT. Okay. 2007 to 12 is when I validated it. And we, we've commercialized it since 2012. Yeah. We have major companies using this. Um, and yeah. we're going to be coming out with our own product shortly. The pancreatic cancer example I gave you, we discovered a combination therapy, which we then spun out a company with MD Anderson. And now we're in the midst yeah. of raising funding for that to uh, grow that. So we have uh, I, seven companies that, yeah. So think about, oh, no, keep, think about keep going. No, keep, keep, yeah. keep going. Sorry. Think about what we've created like iOS, everyone uses or Android. We've created the yeah. operating system for health and on top of that operating system, now we're going after different diseases, and for each disease, we're finding what's called combination therapies, and then we're going to personalize it. You see, uh, what works for you for a particular ailment um, may not work for somebody else. That was always a principle of Eastern systems of medicine. So we are recreating that capability with Cytosol, C-Y-T-O-S-O-L-V-E. That's what we do. Unbelievable. So, I mean, this is So I know is, what I'm trying to say is, but don't, but that's not what, you know, so I'm an inventor and a scientist very much in the sense of what Benjamin Franklin and these guys were, right? If you look at Franklin's biography, he's one of my heroes. These guys did a lot of things, you know? They weren't, oh, yeah. he wasn't just the guy who started the U.S. Postal Service. He wasn't a guy who did a lot of stuff in life. I mean, he did many things. And that's the nature of all of us. All of us are worker bees. All of us like to do a lot of different things. The establishment's yeah. like the pigeonhole us. Oh, you're right. a jock, right? You're yeah. a nerd. You're a celebrity. Yeah. You're a, you know, and, and by doing this, it dehumanizes it because the reality is all of us have many skill sets. And, and you, know what, you know what I've noticed? A, a couple things. Uh, first of all, you, bring, you know, I was just talking about pancreatic cancer the other day with, with somebody, and um, – you know, they didn't have it or anything. I was just talking about the subject, and we're talking, you know, how a lot of cancers are curable and treatable, but that's one of the very few that 
you're pretty you're pretty much gone. You're not going to survive on it. But the fact that you're coming out with all of this, you know, evolved technology that can benefit and strongly contribute to helping these people, I mean, it's it. I mean, this saves lives, and and this is, you know, this is something yeah, that and, is and the way we're going to come to the yeah. way we're going to come to these solutions is through innovation and it's through combinations and personalization. One size does not fit all. The entire, if you go to our website, cyto, C-Y-T-O-S-O-L-V-E.com, our slogan is Big Pharma is the disease, we're the cure. Big Pharma is based on selling stocks and selling a pill that is only was tested on some Africans from people in Thailand. You see what I'm saying? That's how the drug development process works. And then to think that drug is going to help everyone is just false. It's not personalized. You know, some and, and drugs gla- may work for some, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some people, Keep but going they're not going to work for everyone. Yeah, and you bring up, you know, you That's, bring up a really good point when you talk about when you go after the pharmaceuticals and we look at um, the the health industry and we look at you know how there is absolutely a cure for for you know certain. Um, for certain things, well, but they won't it, it, release it because they're making all this money off the medicines. Like we all know well, there's, there's a cure for AIDS out there, but they want the HIV medicine because well, it costs AIDS, so much. Well, this is a longer, this is a longer discussion. But HIV right. does not cause AIDS. It was one of the biggest scams. Um, oh, AIDS wow. is acquired oh, oh, immunodeficiency wow. syndrome. You can get AIDS many ways. You don't eat well. You you know exhaust yourself. Um, There's a whole book called The AIDS War written by John Duisberg, which completely exposes a guy who connected HIV with AIDS and completely disproves the fraud that was done. AIDS is a quiet immunodeficiency syndrome. Uh, Duisberg showed that people were getting it from blood transfusions, not from the blood, but because of immunosuppressive drugs that people were getting. Um, The IV drug users, right, because they were compromising their immune systems. So anyway, there's a lot of fake science out there which is used to promote um, big corporations making a shitload of money off of us. But if you really unravel all of this, you know, in Eastern systems of medicine, all disease had one solution, which was nutrition, you know? It was ultimately what you put into your body and where you lived and the environment you were exposed to. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and, you know, you are what you eat. I mean, it is true when they say that. And, you know, and the biggest problem I've noticed in our in our healthcare society and, you know, with the government is with these with these medications that keep people alive with, with these certain things, there's absolutely a cure, but the government doesn't want to release it because they're making all this money on people getting the medications just to stay alive and, same things with certain types of cancer and certain types of diseases that they say aren't curable, but we know they're there. They are, but the government will not, um, you know, release it because they're trying to find ways to make money and they make money off the medicine. I mean, isn't that accurate? Well, look, starting in the 19, starting in the 1970s, you had a huge lobbying, um, uh, network created between big pharma, big hospitals, and big insurance. And it went like this. It basically said, look, we're going to get people on insurance. We're going to make them addicted to insurance, which means 
everyone says, holy shit, I have to get insurance. Why? Well, if something happens to me, um, the cost of hospitalization will be high. The cost of drugs will be high. Okay? Yeah. So, therefore, you're going to have to get insurance. So, you paid, I don't know, let me, let me just take a number. I mean, I pay close to 800 a month, but let's say you paid 500 a month. So, now you've got a million right. people paying five, or, or let's say 100 million people paying 500 a month, right? That's a big industry. Yeah. Okay? Oh, yeah. Then, every year that went by, they said, you know what? Um, the insurance company said, wow, even if we get a 10% bump from 500 to, we make a lot because that's pure profit, right? So, what do they do? You, you, you thrive on making sure hospitalization goes up, the cost, as well as drug prices go up. See, the insurance industry in this collusion is not motivated to lower the cost of drugs or lower the cost of hospitalization because they're a fear-based industry. They run yeah. based on fe- uh, high fear, right? Because fear is Absolutely. high, you go get insurance. So I have a solution for this. A simple solution is this. We... Um, should get rid of insurance, and everyone should get crisis insurance. You pay about fifty to hundred bucks a month, and if God forbid catastrophic, like you know, like your car catastrophe occurs, that's covered, right? Major disease, et cetera. You get hit on the head with a um, meteor or something like that. You know. On the other hand, you have a prevent preventative. Inch, uh, you encourage people to pay out of pocket, find a good doctor. And do prevention, right? Eat good food, uh, demand that they get organic food, all those good things. And, you know, that's the way it was in the old days. In the 70s, you paid my doctor 15 bucks. There's no reason for just like you take care of your car today and you make sure you find a good mechanic, right? And then you have your insurance, which covers everything else. Well, it's um, all Trump's arrangement. By the way, Rory, I just, got, I, I just got home, so... You know, I got these two new Native American Indian dogs, real Indian dogs. They're pretty yeah. amazing. Anyway. Nice. Very, very nice. But your, your whole yeah, story, these... I mean, it. you know, it's, it's incredible. I know, you know, I have a lot of questions, but I'm going to let, you know, some callers and some, some of my co-hosts um, chip, chip in a little bit, but then we'll, we'll talk some more. I do have a lot of things to ask you uh, policy-wise and stuff. But, Tim, you were – you were with us the other night, uh, and, and Shiva remembers you. Uh, we were all talking at the Arpaio event. You're, you're on the line right now. What's going on, man? Good afternoon, Dr. Shiva. Uh, it's a pleasure to uh, be talking with you again. I was the guy that was talking to you about uh, monetary policy uh, at the Phoenix Oh, event yeah, yeah. I remember that. With yeah. Sheriff Joe. Yeah, and I was just uh, yeah, really impressed by, uh, by the spiel, so I didn't want to interrupt at all. And uh, I, I actually told Rory, I'm like, yeah, I'm actually more excited to see Dr. Shiva here than Sheriff Joe, but I guess don't tell, don't tell Joe that. But, yeah, I guess some of the uh, – I mean, there was just so many different notes I was taking down of different, uh, different things that you were saying. And, like, are you aware of, like, uh, like the Rockefeller's influence on medicine? Uh, and there was a really good documentary by James Corbett of the Corbett Report called How Big Oil Conquered the World, another one called Why Big Oil. And it really gets into how the Rockefellers funded this uh, whole, like, Western takeover of medicine and then infiltrated all the schools. And I just wanted to see um, if you thought there was truth to that or Well, I, you know, I, I have, I'm, what you're saying doesn't sound – it sounds like the larger pattern um, yep. of how the military-industrial academic complex works. You know, Eisenhower talked about it. Fulbright talked about it. The Rockefeller Foundation is sort of at the epicenter of the military-industrial academic complex, particularly the academic side, right? 
They fund, uh, they have the so-called experts. They have tentacles into things like the Aspen Institute. You go down the list. Created an entire ecosystem of elite, quote-unquote, academics who have convinced everyone else, and they speak a certain way, talk a certain way, behave a certain way, that they are the smartest people on the planet. And, and the real epicenter of that is Harvard University, by the way. Harvard University, in my view, is the alpha and the omega of the military-industrial academic complex. And if you think about, and if you look at many of the foundations, be it Rockefeller Foundation, Ford Foundation, you go down the list, right? Gates Foundation, they, uh, you know, birds of a feather flock together, right? They all hang around together. Harvard, in particular, has the law school. They have the medical school. They have the business school. They have the John F. Kennedy School of Government, which is a training ground for the entire deep state. All of them get trained out of there. And that... And, 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 and um, so what I'm saying is, for me, there's a longitude and a latitude, an exact location on the planet Earth, and it's called Harvard University. And um, <laughs> if that, I think that university should be taken back and converted to a community college. That's what it should well, be done. Well, it's going to convert it. It's basically, it's basically just a big hedge fund at this point with, you know, however, exactly. you know, tens it's of billions 40, of dollars. Exactly. It's a $48, $50 billion hedge fund. Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely, absolutely ridiculous. Well, one of the uh, I think real blind spots that being a libertarian that I have with conservatives, it seems like that you know they're so willing to give up uh, you know a certain amount of uh, liberty in order to you know protect America and protect you know protect us from terrorists. And one of those blind spots, and I want to get your take as a technological expert, is the NSA. And it seems like the NSA is really at the heart of the deep state, but you know, I was always saying for years, you know, hey, this is going to be used. This is used for blackmail. This is used for, uh, you know, corporate spying. This is used to, you know, blackmail politicians. And then, and then it comes out that, oh, you know, Trump was wiretapped after all. And it, and it seems like nothing's ever done to actually limit the power, guys, because all you say is, you know, national security and everyone puts their hands up. But do you see, you know, you know, different technological breakthroughs, maybe being able to kind of like circumvent that, like whether it's different blockchain technologies or um, encryption technologies or or maybe the people just finally saying, hey, we've had enough and we don't need to intake every single phone call and email and piece of data for the entire world, all in the name of security. Yeah, so, so I, wrote a, I wrote a book uh, which won a couple of book awards called The Future of Email. You know, as, as a guy who invented email, I know something about technology, and he, here's what I can tell you. The United that's States Postal yep. Service – What's that? That's, that's, that's why I thought you were the perfect person to ask that. So, yeah, sorry. so let, let me tell you my in, insight into this. The United States Postal Service was set up by the founders. If you think about the Second Amendment, if you think about the first, uh, you know, they say the pen is mightier than the sword. Well, the Second Amendment is a sword. The pen is the First Amendment. You follow what I'm saying? And what the Absolutely. founders of this country did was they created the First Amendment. And then they also created the United States Postal Service, which was supposed to be a vehicle for us to exercise our First Amendment. Let me explain this. Um, the First Amendment allows uh, – uh, well, the Postal Service was set up so I could send a letter to you at relatively no cost. Pretty wild, right? So for $0.10, cents, $0.02, cents, you know, there was a time that I could send a letter to you. And if you still think about it, 47 cents to deliver a letter from point A to point B, it's still pretty low. And that was uh, primarily um, uh, Benjamin Franklin's vision, right? 
And the founders knew that people should have a low-cost way of communicating. And the Postal Service was set up. And not only that, they set up what's called the Inspector General's Office of the Postal Service. So if I sent you a letter, no one was supposed to open that. If they did, it was 20 years uh, penitentiary. So it had all these um, uh, protections. You follow me? So what was interesting was around the 80s, the Postal Service started getting gutted. All the best parts of it got outsourced to DHL and FedEx. And the idea was to destroy the Postal Service. Concomitant with that is when you had um, shortly thereafter, you know, starting the 93s with the web, um, you, you started seeing the advent of free email services, Hotmail, Google, Yahoo, et cetera. And if you look at that history, 1997 is when email volume overtook postal mail volume. I was running a company, by the way, as I mentioned, 1993 to 2003, which was analyzing email processing. And I met with the Postal Service guys, and I said, look, um, you guys are sitting on an opportunity. You should create a public mail service, which would be governed by the Postal Service law. So if I sent an email to you through the Postal Service, if anyone tampered with it, it's 20 years life sentence. You see, we already have those legislative laws. They're already in place. They were designed that way. They, they laughed at me. I remember meeting with the senior executives of the Postal Service. They said, oh, do you know we're bigger than Walmart? We have a half a million employees. We don't think email is a big thing. That's not our business. It's like they were stupid. They, didn't, they thought they were in the print mail well, business, paper mail. They forgot they were in the – It's not as bad as Paul Krugman. It's not as bad as Paul Krugman who said that we'll see in, uh, in a little time that the web will have a little more influence than the fax machine, and he's somehow the – best economist on the left. Yeah, but he's a dope. Or he's most, a dope out of Harvard, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, that's the problem with these liberal arts guys, right? They don't build anything, create anything. Uh, everything is subjective. They don't have to back up anything. When you actually have to make something like an airplane or a car or, a, you know, or, or, or <laughs> fix a plumbing thing, if it doesn't work, your customers don't pay you. These guys have no accountability, so they don't even know what they're saying. But my point is, um, so what you ended up having was starting in 93, we all started getting on email free email, and very few people read those privacy notices. We literally gave up our freedom for quote-unquote free email. Those privacy notices clearly state that those companies own our email, okay, Google, Hotmail, etc. My solution to this is I believe the Postal Service is still the right institution. It was a good institution. It should actually offer uh, email, social media services as a public utility, which would be protected by the First Amendment and the laws of the United States. Um, there's all the enforcement rules within it. You cannot rely on technology. This is not a technology solution, no matter if you have 1,028 can bust it. Okay, someone in Israel will write something to bust it. You have to have enforcement, and I think the Postal Service allows that infrastructure to do that. And I have a whole solution I propose for us through mesh networks where we have public networks which are owned by, by the people for the people, and we give back communication back to the people. And that way people yeah. can say, oh, do I want to be on Facebook or do I want to be on the Postal Mail Service? You know, because the Postal Mail Service still has a lot of trust. You know, it, it, you, you. You there? Yeah, I'm um, I'm actually. Uh, yeah, I'm here. So anyway, that's that's the background. Uh, so the ultimate solution is you have to go to what can actually be enforced. Right. You know, and, and what, 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 go ahead. 
Yeah, I'm I'm actually believe it or not, I'm outside in the front of my house talking. And uh, I live in on top of a hill and there's some there's some car that's moving back and forth, so we're a little bit concerned who this guy is. Because I've had some weird things happen. You know, I, I don't know if you guys know, a couple of, uh, uh, a week ago, a guy busted me in the face with a megaphone because yes, we were calling out Elizabeth Warren as a racist. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was, that was um, the guy that was trying to, and I want, I want to get into that because, you know, the, the, I love what you're doing. Uh, you know, you, you're in a position go, going into this, uh, I, I, I going you 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 know Reggie you you you're running as an independent, which is very smart. Tell everybody why, because um, one, you told me one million Repub- in one million. What do you say? Independents voted for Trump in in Massachusetts. Yeah, there's four point r- r- roughly there's four point six million voters in Massachusetts, and. Uh, it's 4.6 million registered voters in Massachusetts. 2.5 million are independent, in- yep. registered independents. 1.5 right. million are are um, Democrats, and a half a million are are Republicans. So that's four and a half million. See, what I'm saying is this is not a blue state or red state. It's a state of independence. And both parties bully people into joining one party. Both parties have convinced people you must choose this nonsensical idea, the lesser of two evils. It's the most fascistic thing you can think about. In Massachusetts yeah. in particular, there's only one party. It's a Democratic Party with yeah. two faces. There's no right. party of uh, Lincoln here. And uh, there's essentially a party yeah. of scumbags. They're all scumbags. I, and I, by the way, I use the word yeah. scumbag, as I mentioned, as a technical term. Yeah. It's, it's and, a very I mean, important term. And with, with your situation right now, I mean, you're, you're, in a, have you, you're in a good position. I mean, you're in a good we're the, ones, uh, we're the ones who have made this race interesting. You know, it was a forlorn conclusion Elizabeth Warren was going to win. And you have to think about it. These guys raised like fifteen, twenty, a hundred million dollars, and it's a complete scam. So if you run for, uh, if you if you want to run, Rory, first thing is you'll have a bunch of idiots show up saying, "Oh, you need to raise a lot of money." And I've always wondered why do you need to raise a lot of money? Well, they want you to raise money, so you pay them. So you pay their TV guys. You know, uh, the whole thing is nonsense. The ultimate way. Uh, you're supposed to do is you're supposed to have an authentic message. The message is supposed to be grounded in reality. And if your message connects with people on a very uh, authentic level, you don't need this kind of money. So what they do is they raise a lot of money and then they brainwash people through another thing called advertising. So they pay a bunch of idiots on Madison Avenue to come up with these things called ads to pummel people with when the fundamental idea is they don't have anything authentic. So what we're finding is only a real Indian can defeat the fake Indian is like a dog whistle. Everyone loves that slogan because it goes at the heart of their hypocrisy. So we've come across lightning in a bottle, and we have really clear policies, and that's where we're going to win because um, I think we're at a point in human history in this country where people are waking up. They're against the establishment. That's why Donald Trump's win was all about. It wasn't about Trump as an individual or not. It was about the fact that in Massachusetts, a million people voted for him. Only, you know, half of the Republicans voted for him, which gives you around 250,000 votes. The other, you know, 750,000 votes came from independents. Wow. So if Trump that's... is not a Republican or a Democrat, he's, he's, you know, he's Trump, you know. He hijacked the Republican Party, and they'll never let it happen again. 
Yeah, and, and absolutely. And you, you know, you facing off with Elizabeth Warren, I mean, you, you're the real Indian here. She's the fake Indian. She's Pocahontas. And you have even asked her to take a DNA test. So has Trump. And she refuses. She keeps saying no. What does she have to hide? We all know. You guys offered her some big money for, for charity, right? Didn't, didn't you guys? I did. Yeah, I Between offered you Trump? $10 million first. And uh, then it was literally on a, a few days later is when uh, Donald Trump Jr. offered her 10k, And then I think a week after I did that, pr- the president offered her a million. So, and then I offered her my house, another four million, and then I also said I'd pay for her trip to Disneyland with Pinocchio. So. And you probably got more than ten million dollars of free advertising from all that too, which is which is the, uh, the best, which is the, the genius part of it, because you know you don't have to go and pay Carl Rove, you know, a quarter of a billion dollars to be the Republican king, kingmaker anymore. And I think like not only are you the real Indian, but and don't take offense to this, but I think you're actually like a real classical liberal. And so it's like only the real classical liberal can defeat the fake liberal. Because if you look at all the issues that, you know, supposedly she's a liberal on, you know, you know, she's got the big banks in her pocket. She's got, you know, the, uh, you know, big agriculture, big pharma, you know, all the, you know, the most elitist universities, you know, faked her way yep. through, you know, using identity politics. So I think you can actually like, claim the mantle of, you know, I'm at, like in a classical liberal sense because, you know, liberal doesn't like today's version of liberal doesn't really mean what it used to back in the day. Right. It's just like pretty much it's not everything. The JF, it's not the JFK days. I mean, classical liberal for, was for J, like JFK. And, you know, and Martin Luther, Martin Luther King was a conservative Republican belief. If any, you know, I know the Democrats want to take claim for him, but if he was alive today, same with JFK and MLK, they'd both be Trump supporters without a doubt. Um, and that's, you know, that's a classical liberal to me. I think in a lot of sense, Trump is a classical liberal, um, in many, in many different instances. Um, you know, he, he's, he's not fully right wing, you know, like, uh, <laughs> go ahead. who, who, uh, who was laughing? No, 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 no. One of the things here is this, it's not about, see these terms left and right have been so misused. I think we need yeah. to change this to who believes in centralization of power versus right. decentralization of power. That's right. the right way to look at this, right? Um, right? There was a great book written by a guy called Edwin Schumacher many, many years ago called Small is Beautiful. If you yeah. look at the human cell, we don't have one big cell, right? We have 10 trillion yeah. cells that communicate among each other. It's a self-organizing system. There was a, in 1957, there was a, a physicist who won the Nobel Prize. Uh, in uh, physics, and he basically um, showed the weaknesses of Newtonian mechanics as well well as Einstein stuff, and he said the universe is actually a self-organizing system, which means that you get enough things communicating among each other, and something emerges out of it. So um, the sum of the parts is greater than the whole. So what that means is, um, you know, to put it simply, by the time you got up this morning, and this evening, you probably made about, uh, you know, at least 100 different decisions, right? What you were going to eat, what, what shirt you were going to wear, um, what you were going to do, blah, 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 blah. No government told you to do that, right? You have a local intelligence which lets you figure that out. And that's nature. So if you want to follow nature's principles, nature is a self-organizing system over 
many billions of years, nature um, figured out what works. And you can call nature whatever you want, intelligence, God, et cetera, right? But it, 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 it's a lot smarter than we are. And it's based on uh, – and then you look at nature's fruits. Nature is decentral. It has freedom. It decentralizes. It believes in its children, right, to make decisions. That's purely following natural law. So that's the, that's the way I look at it. So you, you decentralize. So Elizabeth Warren believes in Monsanto. She believes in big farms. Um, big ag, you know, I believe in local farms. She believes in big pharma. I believe in prevention. You know, you right. teach people what to eat. You, you, uh, you know, you decentralize stuff. She believes in big universities. I believe in small Votech schools. You teach people skills. And that principle is much easier for people to understand. Right. Then left, right. And, things get, these, this is a way to freaking manipulate people. Oh, are you pro-choice, pro-non-choice? Yeah. Are you pro-transgender? These are nonsensical it, issues. What condom, whether yeah. you wear a condom or not, who the hell cares? Most of these people no, think homosexual studies is you're doing something great. I mean, they've completely subverted what it means to be a rational yeah. human being. Exactly. So that's what we have. I mean, We're living in, 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 in the right. So you got to go back to these very. So the way I look at it is, I tell people, do these people want a centralized power? That's called fascism, because Mussolini's advisor he actually got biology wrong. He said, "Oh, a bunch of cells are controlled top down." That's not true. Cells actually communicate among themselves. Now we're finding memory is actually holographic. It's decentralized. You know. So when you actually look at nature, nature is quite decentralized. Yeah. And yeah. that's intelligence. Intelligence is everywhere in the, in the universe. So if you think about information, matter, and energy, now they're finding that information is at the edge of black holes or the edge of the universe, and that transforms itself into matter. So the bottom line is ideas, information, decentralization is how nature operates. So that's how we should operate. Decentralization, you know, we should... Um, uh, uh, we should really honor people who have great ideas, right? Uh, who are yeah. innovators, tra- who translate stuff, and not these people who move money around. So on the one hand, we have a bunch of leeches who we call on Wall Street who simply move money around, and they make a ton of money not doing work. Those same people, those same leeches, are incentivizing other leeches to basically be gang members, right? Live off welfare, support illegal immigration, lawlessness. And then in between those two leeches are the American working people who actually do work and work, work their butts off. And both leeches are the ones that squeeze out and create all these income inequality issues. But basically you have a set of people who don't do work. They don't produce any value. Yeah. Well, Jesus only used violence once in the Bible, and it was to uh, whip the money changers. Oh, yeah, they, exactly. Everyone forgets that's the best scene in the Bible, man. The best scene in the entire Bible is where Jesus takes uh, whatever, the cat of nine tails, and he whips yep. the shit out of those bankers. And, and yeah. whenever you ask Christians that, they say, oh, well, that was, you know, you know, him just getting angry. Well, no, that is essential. That scene is the Bible yeah. right there. And, right. No one, and it's way, worse, book, today. The and way, it's way called, worse today than it was back then. It's infinitely worse yeah, today. Yeah, there's a great book called Jesus banking. the Revolutionary written by a uh, divinity school uh, graduate his PhD thesis, and it really analyzes the life of Jesus Christ, and it really right. brings that. Uh, you know, we can have a discussion of his divinity, but independent and as a part of that, he had a mission yeah. on Earth. 
which was yeah. to basically destroy the existing establishment. That's what he was doing. And he had a program. You know, he would go among everyday people, eat with them. He was trying to bust up the whole hierarchies. And that's what we have now. We have Harvard University thinking they're the smartest freaking people and they own everything. Elizabeth Warren thinks she knows everything. And in Massachusetts, <laughs> by the way, there is no party of Lincoln. You have the Democratic Party. Here we have a guy called Charlie Baker, who's never Trump or Republican governor. He's supporting three scumbag uh, people running in the Republican Party, potentially for Senate. One guy supported Joe Biden. Uh, his campaign oh, manager is a Saudi lobbyist. Another guy gave money to Bill Clinton. And the third woman ran the lottery. It's complete scum, man. Americans oh deserve God. much better. So they lower the standards. Yeah. So you have the left wing yeah. who points the finger at the poor white working class and the so-called yeah. right wing who uses the poor white working class to make minorities and blacks a problem. You see? So they, they've never really solved anything. Yeah, and – you know, Massachusetts. I, I wanna. I, I know my. I wanna let G, my co-host Josh. I know he he wants to say something, and then Valerie. But you know, Massachusetts. Um, it, it's you know it hasn't really been anything close to conservative since JFK days. I mean, JFK was the guy from Massachusetts. I mean, I, I don't consider Romney. I know he was the governor there, but I don't consider him a real conservative. He's a rhino. Um, but, you know, JFK was something called a, de- a conservative Democrat, which is basically what Trump is in a sense. Um, but, but you, am I, I, well, mean, that's am what I right, saying. though? You I'm, really I'm haven't saying, seen it. Since- R- Rory, I think, I think we all need to start changing the terms. You see, Romney wanted centralization of power. He thought he knew yeah. better. Romney care, yeah. a.k.a. Obamacare. Okay. Yeah. He, this guy Romney, uh, yeah, another Romney scumbag. Care. He consolidated all the methadone clinics when he was at Bain and flipped it. Uh, yeah. He consolidated them for seven hundred fifty million, then flipped it and made one point eight billion. It's called the swamp economy. He's a complete, you know, he's an idiot, you know, and he um, is revered as some, you know, great thinker. Bottom line is he's part of the swamp. He wanted he wanted big insurance. And that's what you we have to start thinking people who want things big and and centralization of power and people want to decentralize it. You know, John Kennedy figured it out. He figured it out and he wanted to give power back to the people. That's what he was trying to do. Yep. And if he was alive today, he would not align with the Democratic Party whatsoever. Not even close. Or the establishment Republican Party. Look. Both parties work against everyday working people. On illegal immigration, the Democrats use it for votes, and the Republicans use it for cheap labor. That's what they do. Yeah. Yeah. But here's my solution, immigration. Take all the the people. Go ahead. Go ahead, Shiva. Go ahead, Shiva. You know, I don't know. Let's say there's 30 million, 20 million illegal immigrants. Let's say 10 million uh, on a good day are good working, hard working people. Um, Take all of them. Uh, put them on a path to citizenship, right? Because they're probably uh, maybe generating 50, 60, 100K a year. Make them yeah. taxpayers, put them at the bottom of the list. They, ha- you know, they have to go through permanent yeah. residence, et cetera, but get them, get them generating income, which they are, and tax them. Then on the other side, take all these people who are living off welfare, are, are milking the system, and give them two years. I mean, obviously, you're compassionate to those people who can't work. And look, even those people who can't work, I'm sorry, they can work, okay? I mean, there's, I used to work with an organization called Very Special Arts, um, which was dedicated to finding blind people, you know, because a lot of people, even with disabilities, want to work. So that's a very rare thing you really cannot work, you know? 
But yeah. those people yeah. who are able-bodied and working, you give them two years to get an associate's yeah. degree in some trade and get working. And if they don't want to do that, you know, you don't cover them anymore because we, this country is based on hard work and meritocracy. It wasn't based on being a leech. So if there are, or you have an, or you have a, or you have an immigration exchange program, those people who want to leech off your, let them go live in some small village in India and small, you know, do an immigration exchange program. So you give up your citizenship. If you don't want to work, you don't want to suffer and be a good American, you go off somewhere and you see how hard it is in other countries. Right. Well, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Reverse immigration program. I couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more. You're, you're right on point. Uh, Josh, go ahead. Yeah. Hey, uh, co-host Josh here. Hey, a quick question just about your campaign specifically. What are you doing right now to try to get yourself out there, especially with, you know, you're, you're fighting, you're fighting against someone who's very much establishment and very much has, uh, you know, the Democrat money bag uh, backing them. What are you doing kind of to get an upper hand? Well, we, we're the only, first of all, let, let's look at this election. Um, separate from all the things I do in science and medicine and all those kind of things, I've also been a fighter. We're the ones who are taking Warren head on. The Republicans have no interest in defeating Warren. Um, uh, Charlie Baker in Massachusetts uh, will give her the Senate seat. He'll throw it to her. He'll, they'll select some dopey uh, individual. And, and in return, um, Baker, the Republican, gets to be governor. That's the collusion deal that they have. So let's just get that straight. Um, so the bottom line is, before we came into this, it was a forlorn conclusion Elizabeth Warren was going to win. You know, only the real Indian can defeat the fake Indian, has taken Massachusetts by storm. I would say one out of, at least I would say 40 to 50% of people have heard of our name, which is quite significant. If you go to Google and you type in Warren and you see who, had, who else people search for, you'll see our articles popping up there, our videos coming up. So when people search for it, they're seeing us. How has that come about? Well, that's come about us being street fighters. We went right direct to her. You're you know, a when tech we put up our, too. We understand technology also. You know, the back end, you know, I've donated close to $4.9 million of my own technology to the campaign, and some of the local media diminished that. Oh, that's not real money. Well, wait a minute. Uh, one is, I think, um, Jim, was it you and I have talked about this, right? One is physical cash. The other is the products of your labor. I mean, I innovated the back-end technology, which, by the way, the Bush campaign used for the 2000 election when they, when they beat, um, uh, you know, when they won that election, right, against Gore, which is the technology to do all the data analytics, everything. So that core technology, which is worth tens of millions, I've donated to our campaign. So is it cash? Well, it's better than cash. And then we raise small dollar donations. But when I look at the numbers, and you're talking I don't about understand the street. why these I, guys... I, I asked you about that. You are talking about something with uh, how you were doing your campaign. So you said the word street, and then I kind of interrupted you and said... Yes, um, so, yeah, so, so when you look at it, the way um, we're going after our campaign, and the simple way anyone who's listening wants to help, is a very simple thing. You know, We have a volunteer base. Um, just to give you... Uh, here's an example of the success of that volunteer base. We collected, you know, in Massachusetts to get on the ballot as an independent or as a Republican or as a Democrat, you have to get at least 10,000 certified signatures. There's 351 cities and wards in Massachusetts. You have to go there and collect signatures from them. And then you have to take the collected signatures back to the town halls. 
get them certified. And then you have to take, collect all those back, and then you have to send them to the Secretary of State. It's an arduous process. 99% of people never do this because they don't have the party infrastructure, the know-how. Well, literally, we are the first ones to get on the ballot. We did it. We didn't pay anyone for signatures. All of these guys pay signature getters. Everything was bottoms up. So that tells you we have a very strong grassroots bottoms up game. Second, I'll give you another example. People see us as fighters. When the city of Cambridge sent me a letter saying if we didn't remove the slogan, only the real Indian can defeat the fake Indian off our bus, they said they were going to fine us 300 bucks a day. We sued them in federal court against violation of free speech, and we won. And that went viral all over the Internet. Just the fact we fought. Great visibility for us. Another Cambridge, example, which, which, it was, which is where Harvard is, correct? Yeah, that's where Harvard is. Exactly. So Cambridge, think about it as a city in Massachusetts, which is sort of where all the liberals are. And the, epic, the, the nucleus of that city is Harvard University. Okay? So um, the other thing is about last year, August 19, 2017, uh, I was one of the speakers invited to the Parkman Bandstand where people like Frederick Douglass and et cetera have spoken to give a speech on free speech to with along with 12 other people. And, I can only um, imagine the three protests. Days, <laughs> well, three days before that, Charlottesville occurred, and, and, and the, the young students who organized that invited people of all different spectrums, you know, right-wing, left-wing, Green Party. But right after Charlottesville took place, three days before, the mayor of Cambridge and the governor characterized that event, because people like Joe Biggs were going to speak, that it was a Nazi event. And I, you know, I'm a Trump supporter. So we, they characterized me as a Nazi, as a white supremacist. So 40 of us show up. Jesus Christ. 40,000 people show up. Check this out. 40,000 people thinking we're all Nazis. So it was us and the police. It was like a, a picture out of Braveheart. The press weren't allowed to hear us. Luckily, we, we got a video. And in the video, in my speech, I'm denouncing Hillary Clinton as a racist, Joe Biden as a racist. Joe Biden, by the way, said, you know, the only reason he liked Obama was he was the first clean and articulate black man. Harry Reid, Robert Byrd, right? None of that was. Yeah, that's actually how I discovered. That's actually how I discovered you was from uh, was from that event. Then, then trying to brand you. Yeah, I mean, and then I end the speech saying, "Love, love, love," basically saying we have to stop race war. They did not. Luckily, it got out. Um, because we have a good media team, we we uh, uh, if it weren't for the Boston police, we all would have been killed. My point is, people see us as a fighter. We go on the ground. Yeah. Um, three yeah. July twenty second, we went to a Warren rally and called her and her white liberal racists out as racist. <laughs> and a guy came up and punched me in my face into the megaphone, and that went viral. He got arrested. I saw. We're gonna go after I him. I saw hard. that, and I was appalled. When I saw that, I was appalled. Yeah. Well, I, I was actually so, Yeah, go ahead, Valerie. We're going to be having a massive anti-racist rally against Warren quite soon. Excellent. Go ahead, Valerie. So I have a question because you're talking about um, what's going on in Boston, and I um, just completed a book um, on terrorism and radicalization, and one of the mosques that I w- looked at was in Boston. It actually was started by a Harvard University student. And it's also the mosque that the Sarnaya brothers came from, and it's a, it's completely radical, um, you know, all kinds of terrorists 
belong to this mosque, and I'm trying to figure out why. It's, do you know which one I'm talking about? It's, yeah, I do. I know. That, yeah, I, I think it's in Central Square. I know the one you're talking about. It's near a food so shop. I do. Why, I, why yeah, I do know is it still of it. open? What is the politics behind this that, that it doesn't close down with all of these, these terrorists coming in and out of that location? And I think you're right. It is that location. Yeah, look, you got to I mean, um, these people like the Sarnayev brothers, these people are just essentially puppets in many ways for something much deeper. Um, if you look at Harvard University, um, it's a fake university. It's a, it's, a, it's a multi-billion dollar hedge fund, you know, $50 billion hedge fund. And Harvard thrives. Um, the, the people who run Harvard and the people who invest in Harvard do not care about this country. They have their globalists. They have their money everywhere. So like Larry any, Summers like illusion. Like the Saudi. Yeah, they have their money everywhere, right? Here. Very they, dirty money. The reason they support Middle East section. Yes, I hear you. I agree. R- right. Remember, get back to the principle of centralization and decentralization. Um, the reason they like fundamentalist Islam is because it's a highly centralized religion. You can control people. Look, I, when I was in Egypt, um, I went there on a on a Rotary scholarship many, many, many years ago. And the students I met there all hated their government. These people wanted to be westernized. So the way they, they split up people in the Middle East is they push fundamentalism. That's what Hillary Clinton wanted. She wanted Wahhabi fundamentalist Islam, which is the most fundamentalist aspect of Islam, which is totally right. uh, no respect to women, total centralization of power. It's centralized. Let's, let, it, let's, let's be specific. The word radical here means the most centralized, right? It's okay. the most centralized, mm-hmm. oppressive form of Islam, right? That's what it is. Yes. Yeah, so how and can a Democrat have... like Hillary Clinton, who wants to be the first woman president, be in favor of something that, that really doesn't allow any freedom to any women? Oh, because they don't want freedom to women. You see, there's two types of freedom, uh, just like there's two types of uh, racial freedom, right? There's bourgeois and there's for everyone else, right? So when Hillary Clinton right. says she wants freedom for women, she's talking about a few women who want to be corporate CEOs and rule the world. That's not about working class women. It's not about the American working class woman who busts her ass and is trying to maintain a family. Very much like the uh, bourgeois black movement. You know, after civil rights, what we created was a pencil thin strata of very wealthy black people like the Oprahs, et cetera. The majority of black people in this country today are in worse condition than they were before civil rights. And that's an economic fact. The average net worth of a black person in Boston by the Federal Reserve is $8. And poor whites, wow. we don't even talk about it. If you sure defend poor, poor whites, you're called a white supremacist. So what we've created is a pencil-thin strata of Obamas. Uh, you know, who, who's that guy? Eric Holder, right? These bourgeois Uncle Toms who think they're actually better than their own Um, you know, black brethren, right? They're like the upper caste Indians. That's what we've created. And that's what, so it's, you know, these people do not, Hillary Clinton, when you say it's not that surprising, they are basically part of an elite caste system. So I always like to tell this to people. I I left a caste system in India. And what we have now in America is a a multiracial caste system. Harvard is a multiracial aristocracy. That's what it is. Wow, you're absolutely right. And that's right. what we come to terms with. We can't view this as race, and that's why I think our election is interesting 
because we have the opportunity to bring together black and white people of all color to recognize that the establishment is one and the right wing, um, you know, tries to go after the poor blacks and the left wing tries to go after poor whites. And they, they like race war. That's how politicians work. That's they thrive on racism. They need racism because that's how they get their votes. Gianni, go ahead. Well, yeah, What's I was that? gonna say I agree with everything you said, you know, and black people work. And you're Gianni, you're a black Trump supporter. You you know, you're a regular on the show. Tell everyone, you know, you know what you know what's going on. Yeah, you know, and if you look back and look at Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and most of the black leaders of their time, they were living very middle class back then. They were they were living in nice neighborhoods. And it it all is because of LBJ's great society. You know, LBJ was a person that once said that uh, I'll have these niggers. This is what he said. I'll have these niggers yep. voting Democrat for the next 200 years. And it turned out it almost be true, you know. And I believe with the election of Trump and black unemployment, you know, and the whole Kanye West thing, and I believe that slowly uh, black people are waking up to the Democrats' games. I mean, because th- that's what we need. We need results. We don't need no more talking. We don't need no more civil rights talking. Those days are over. This is not the 60s. This is 2018. And and I saw um, this nutcase Hollywood person. I forgot what her name was. I think it was Anne Hathaway. You know, and she was mm. like, black people fear for their lives daily. All black people. And I was shocked. I was like, this is crazy. Like, people actually think I'm running around scared to get shot by a cop or, you know, I have no opportunities. I have, I'm like, we have a president that was elected twice. A black person that was elected twice. That should show you how far we've come in this country. But, yeah, I agree that, you know, black people were more far, far off better, you know, before the whole movement of LBJ and his great society. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think uh, what people – I think that recognition is happening uh, broadly. You know, I, I think – look, the way I like to say is that we're all niggas on the white liberal reservation. That's what we are. That's what they created. Right? And and they what what the what the Democratic Party and the liberals try to tell us is if you stop using the the N word and you change the name of buildings, then you've solved racism. So the Democrats took over the discussion of race and about ten people at Harvard, by the way, own the narrative on race and they bounded it by don't use the N word, right? and change the name of a few buildings, and then you've solved racism. Meanwhile, the Republican establishment told people, oh, don't talk about racism. If you do, you're you're talking like a victim. And what I want to say, there is racism. And that racism needs to be defined very precisely as people who use race to create race war for their economic gain or for their personal benefit. So, So you have people on the right who blame blacks, and you have people on the left who blame whites. And both and these two sets of politicians do this in very subtle ways because they want black voters to vote black and they want white voters to vote. And I see this in Boston. We had one talk show host say, you know, I, I was uh, there was a false arrest that I was done it was outright dismissal. One um, right wing talk show host uh, tries to present me as a, a black guy who beats white women. Meanwhile, the liberals try to present me as a white supremacist. It's unbelievable. You see what I'm trying to say? They, they want to brandish people, when, especially when you step off, like you said, off the plantation, and you start thinking independently. So I think the opportunity is we, gotta, we have an opportunity to discuss race. You know, in Gallup, which does this amazing poll every week. Uh, I love it. They do great uh, polls. 
Yeah, number one issue is governance. Number two issue is race. We need, that's why we went to this Warren rally um, on July 22nd. She's, uh, it's it, out in Western Mass where all the white liberals show up, you know, who eat their organic food, talk about all the hippies, and they're going into, a, into this big air-conditioned auditorium to listen to her speak. We set up in a public uh, area outside, and I brought my megaphone, and I said, look, why don't you guys come over here? And, you know, you're all hippies. Let's have a discourse on this lawn uh, in a beautiful day. Why are you going to an air-conditioned room and wasting energy? Well, none of them came over, and I started sharing my definition of racism. I said, you're going into here a racist. Elizabeth Warren is a racist. She used affirmative action for her political mm-hmm. gain. That's racism. You see what I'm saying? So we need to discuss racism, and we need to point that the real racists are the white liberals. That's yeah, no, absolutely. And we, should not, we should not ignore racism, because, and they also do not want to discuss p- the plight of poor whites. That's also racism. You see? Go ahead, John. Oh, yeah. I know, and I would say, I would... go ahead. Gianni, I'm go sorry. Ahead. Oh yeah, I was gonna say, Michael Max agrees. Michael Max repeatedly talked about the danger of the white liberal. He brings this up all the time. And adding, when you said the hipsters, see, I'm from New York, I'm from Brooklyn, and I've mm. seen the movement of the whole hipster movement and all the white liberals and things, but. They talk about, you know, Republicans or conservatives being racist, but who is the ones pushing the black and the Puerto Rican people out of the neighborhood? Because when they see, because I used to be able to go to the corner store or the bodega and get like a chopped cheese sandwich for $4. Now it is $8 just to get a chopped cheese sandwich. Now why? Because you got McKenzie and Allen moving in from Colorado right. you know, to Brooklyn now. And now guess what? Things are going up higher. And they, that's what they don't understand, that the reason why uh, they, they so-called call everyone racist, they don't understand when they're moving into Brooklyn, they're moving all the people that they quote, quote, unquote, fight for out of the neighborhood. And then that is, it's just madness because their parents are rich, you know, they got all the money. It is always like Tucker Carlson said, why is it always the rich white people that always want to tell, tell you know, black people how to think? Why is it always the rich white people that want to tell uh, black people that, hey, look, the conservatives and Republicans, they're the racist ones. And why is it always them that try to fight for poor people's needs when in reality they don't care at all? Yeah. Well, what's interesting is at that rally, I mean, to your point, we were literally calling out these rich white liberals as racist. Yes. And, I, and I was limousine saying – Limousine liberals. Uh, they call them limousine liberals. Right. Yeah. And, and we were, again, on our own side with our own megaphone, you know, doing our free speech thing across. These people are lining up. And I, I think the sentence I was saying is we don't have enough engineers. We don't have enough doctors. We have a lot of scumbag lawyer lobbyists like Elizabeth Warren. And that's when this guy comes across and calls me a racist. And he's got his and it was fascinating. Is he has his T-shirt emblazoned with liberals and he punches the megaphone, which is an amazing symbol, right? I Liberal the punching the megaphone. The, the guy was a goofball. I mean, the guy looked like a complete goofball. But you don't understand what he does for a living. He's a quote-unquote artiste whose artwork is pictures of black and white naked Barbie dolls, and he Whoa. positions himself as an artiste about racism. You see, that's how these guys are. They really think they, like they're the experts that's going to tell the darky, me, what racism is all about. And, and God forbid that I stand up on my own two feet and I give my own narrative, which I come through my own independent conclusions. That's what pisses them off. It blows a fuse in their moral narcissist brain of theirs. 
And that's what I think we need to do. We need to blow all of these guys' brains up because they're actually – a friend of mine said these people are actually sick. He called it, called it moral narcissism. They think their morality is it. It's the truth. So they do not want the, you know, the field slave off the plantation. That's what, you know. And by the way, in the Indian community, um, we, by the way, when we were collecting signatures in Massachusetts, very few Indians signed my thing because most of them are upper caste house niggers. Okay? That's what they are, most of them. You don't yeah. have, uh, you, you know, people like my parents and I, we were the field niggers, okay, who got off, right? And we made it here. But most of the Indians who come here support Gandhi. By the way, Gandhi wasn't some great guy. He basically was uh, brought in by the British to subjugate Indians further. There were people who actually wanted to kick out the British. So the establishment has always been very, very clever to put in Uncle Tom's and Aunt Jemima's to uh, collaborate with the white liberals. Yeah, and, and, and Malcolm and, was and very I'm good so, at calling these people out. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, you, you running against Maxine, you know Elizabeth Warren, Pocahontas in Massachusetts, you have a really good chance. I mean, I would say you, you're going to beat her. Cause, I mean, this woman has over and over failed to deliver. I mean, what has she accomplished? What has she done except put, uh, you know, the, the people in debt? I mean, she's, she's a thief. She lives in a, a what, a $4 million mansion or something in Cambridge? Like, this woman is, is, is uh, ridiculous. I mean, it's, it's basically do as I say, not as I do. Right. But what you know I'm saying what is I that's mean? what the opportunities. We, we, we have a big opportunity in Massachusetts. We figured out how to beat Elizabeth Warren, and that's what we're going to do. And I think everyone – this is not just a local state race. This isn't yes. – That's. I mean, half of our supporters are from out of, out of the state because they're watching right. this because they know Elizabeth Warren is, represents yes. all of these scumbag politicians. I mean, she represents all of them. She's just a stellar example of how fake they all are. You know, people like Trump, people like myself, people like uh, even Rand Paul, people even like Tom uh, Massey, people actually worked for a living, you actually created stuff. That's who the founders were. You weren't supposed to be a career politician. The concept of a career politician is so disgusting when you think about it. You were supposed to have a skill, you honored this country by serving, and you went back to work. That's America. Anyone who wants to be a career politician and says, oh, here's my political resume, I was a mayor, then I was a state rep, we should spit on those people because that's not the spirit of this country. You're supposed to have actually a freaking job. We should ask them, what was your job? Did you plant trees, plumb? I mean, can you, can you, are you a plumber? Can you do any electrical work? Like, what are your skills? Are you a butcher? Oh, I served as a state rep. Well, screw you. You have no background. You don't know yeah, what right. people suffer through, right? right? So we need to get back to we, – we've lowered the standards so low – that people think it's okay to cheat, it's okay to lie. Well, well, she didn't really lie on her application. Oh, so what if she does, did that? So what we hope to do with our campaign is to raise the standard to a significant level. Hey, here's a guy who came yeah. from India with nothing, came in here legally, went through the public yeah. school system, got four degrees from MIT, started seven companies. That's, he embodies the spirit of this country, and you deserve that. You don't deserve scumbags. And, and you've lived a hell of a life. You, you know, just like you said, seven companies. And at the moment, um, you know, I, I, before we, before I let you go, um, at the moment, you, how many tech companies do you have? I know you have the, you, the pancreatic cancer 
secure uh, well, we, research yeah, so, technology so, that you're doing? And then what well, else what do you have going on? We're creating an ecosystem for innovation. So Cytosol, think about that like the iOS operating system for health. Around that, we spun, around, uh, spun out seven companies. One company is for Alzheimer's, another company is for pancreatic cancer, another company um, that's looking at osteoarthritis, et cetera. We have seven companies like that. Separate from that, I have another company called Systems Health, which is an educational institute. That came out of my Fulbright work where, where I um, cracked the code on really integrating Eastern medicine with Western systems theory. So bottom line, literally we've put together a very powerful set of apps and courses where we're taking MDs, even yoga teachers, and showing them the binding principles that integrate Eastern and Western medicine. And um, it's basically enabling people from the Western world to start looking at Eastern medicine uh, in a much more scientific way. That's what we've done. That's systems health. In fact, this past weekend, I just taught a course to a bunch of, you know, uh, Eastern practitioners. But it's a way, way of training them. Um, three weeks ago, I gave a big talk at the medical school. So that's what I enjoy doing, you know. But I can tell you that we're not going to solve the big problems of the world until we understand that the root cause of a lot of this is the deep state. It's a yep. set of people who have no right governing us anymore and who bamboozled all of us to think they have the right to represent us. And uh, my hope with our election is to raise standards. Like, wait a minute, why don't we have people who actually work for a living, you know, actually have skills telling us what to right. do? Because remember, all of these politicians, they have no skills. They don't know anything. So they all need consultants. Yeah. They can't think for themselves. You're at, you're, so they're told you're at, the laws aren't even written by them, right? The laws aren't even written right. by them. You're 100% like, uh, like, right. Uh, they're, the, they're like the well, cash register guys at 7-Eleven. That's who these politicians are. <laughs> That's all they are. Or they're like yeah. a toll booth, you know? And we've automated toll booths. All of these politicians can easily be automated, you know, with not even that smart AI. I, I once heard somebody oh. say, uh, you know, 80% of government jobs could be replaced by robots. And somebody said, well, actually, 100% can be replaced by pictures of robots. I'm, I mean, That's right, too. Or, or we could take or we could give gorillas, you know, indig- yeah. you know, rights and then replace a lot of them with gorillas, which probably yeah. would do a better job. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look what they're doing at McDonald's. They're starting to do kiosks now because no owner wants right. to deal with the ridiculous dollars an hour socialist communist agenda nobody no uh, well it's, that's it's the not thing. even that i mean i think it's an well, opportunity thing, for young here, people to actually I've get always, skills real quick real quick though what about what i've always noticed is that these democrats mislead the voters because once you start putting 15 dollars an hour up there on the table all that does for owners is, is hire less people the owners don't want to pay all these people i mean it, it's common knowledge and now what they're doing is checkout kiosks because of the fifteen dollar an hour, uh, you know, uh, to, you know, the uh, spike. Yeah. Look, the AI think? thing is going to be a very interesting thing. Norbert Wiener, who is yeah. known as the father of cybernetics. Um, yeah. Norbert Wiener, he he created modern robotics. You can look him up. N O R B E R T Wiener W I E N E R. Norbert Wiener. Yeah actually wrote a whole essay saying why he was, after he created cybernetics, he was saying he was against automation, what it would do to humans. So right. it's an interesting world if you take that perspective. The other flip side of it is 
that we need to move up the knowledge scale. We need to start training people on much higher skill sets, you know? Right. So I mean, you're not a fan uh, of the $15 an hour thing. You would never go for that, would you? Well, here's my thing, right? It's, I, I don't think that's the right question, right? The issue is where is skilled labor? First of all, right. why, why are we even having that discussion, right? Um, but I mean, for like working at McDonald's, even, I mean, that, that was Bernie's message. Give somebody $15 an hour that's flipping burgers. No, no, but see, he's an idiot. The guy, never, the guy never – he's never worked for a living. I think he tried to be a carpenter. He failed at that. Um, he yeah. tried to write erotic novels. He failed at that. Right. So you're lo- right. looking at a guy who can't do – who does. so his view is that he should get paid for just hanging out on the couch. My point yeah. is um, – um, certain jobs, uh, you know, can be automated and they should be automated, right? But the issue yeah. is a human being is in many ways a divine spark of the infinite. So people yeah. should be exercising. We should give them – they should be pushed and they should be motivated to fully ex- exercise their gifts as a human being. And that's what a, a very civilized society will do, right? It will right. enable people and it will push people from, uh, from the time they're born – uh, it won't coddle them to fully become a fully effulgent human being. And if it's not doing that, then it's creating dependency and that's slavery. So, and and do, you know, you see, so, do you see the AI taking over? Well, look, the reality is, uh, I mean, you know, you could argue a washing machine is AI, right? You could argue right. um, that a faucet is AI, right? Um, anything talk- that I'm- reduces human... Yeah. Yeah, so keep going. I like I'm what you're saying. Anything, that, going. anything that reduces, anything that reduces time and space, you're yeah. adding intelligence. You know, I, I teach a course in control systems here, and you define what intelligence is. A stove, a microwave is AI, right? So we've already yeah. started moving in this direction. The genie's been out of the bottle probably since the 1800s. So right. it's just going to go in that direction. The real yeah. issue is what does it mean to be a human being? This is a central right. issue. You know, many years ago when I was doing a lot of research in AI, I had a very interesting dream. And in the dream, I was yeah. sitting next to a robot. And the robot yeah. and I were having a conversation in the dream. That, and, the, and the question was, what does it mean to be human? Yeah. You see, one day we're going to create machines that you'll be able to talk to. It may even be able to smell. It may even be able to have emotions. So the question happens, yeah. what is the difference between you and it? And the conclusion I've come to is that can that thing – human or silicon reflect on itself and ask the question, who am I? And a lot of human beings don't ask that question. Who am I? Right. What does it mean to be human being? And once you ask that, then you're a human being. So you could argue that a robot could be a human being. So the issue is not whether we're going to have AI or not. You know, there are a lot of human beings are AI, right? But a lot of human beings, a lot of human beings just follow a program. I was born into a right. Catholic family. I was born into a Jewish family. I'm born into an Indian family. Therefore, yeah. I behave like this. I'm born, right? The, the day right. that we ask, who am I? Understand yeah. that you are far more than who you think you are or what you were yeah. programmed into. That's when yep. you become a human being. So the issue I think is going to happen is, what does it mean to be human? I think that's going to be the central question that's going to arise over the next 10, 20, 30 years if it hasn't already. Do you think Absolutely. it's going to move towards transhumanism where we start, uh, like, you know, you've got guys like Ray Kurzweil talking about, you know, merging with machines and how he doesn't think. Yeah, but you uh, could argue that doesn't mean, I don't, I, I mean, I know of Ray Kurzweil. I don't think he's asking the right question. This guy's not thinking deep enough. The issue really is, is what does it mean to be a human being? 
And the issue is machines may actually become more human, and a lot of humans may actually be more robots. Think about all these – think about the liberal white guy who punched me in the face. I would call him a robot, right? right? He is right. already has a set of programs in his head that what racism means, and he's just firing those, those – he hasn't sat back and thought about my journey, his journey, yeah. that there could be other views in the planet. You see what I'm saying? He has yeah. his view – and it's a, it's like a software program. If A, yes. then B, then C, then execute D. You see? If A, a then absolutely. B, and D doesn't compute, X punch in the face. You see what I'm saying? Absolutely. It's a stupid robot and she, with a bug in it. Shiva, Shiva I, love, I love everything you're saying. We do have about a minute left. Um, but I do want to ask you, um, before you go, and I want you to promote whatever you have to promote, and I'm going to get you back on the show uh, very soon. I loved having you on. We've had, we've had you on for like an hour and a half and it's been fantastic. Uh, you're a very knowledgeable, very insightful, uh, an amazing guest. I want to thank you. Um, but real quick though, do you see the, uh, the checkout kiosks, uh, being the new future, uh, for fast food and for these uh, department stores and groceries? Like, do you see that and, and rather than human beings? Well, you know, it's, it's, in Boston, by the way, there's a store that just started where there's not only checkout kiosks, but the food is actually made by a robot, end-to-end, like a salad bowl. You can look it up. It's called a, a robot restaurant. Um, what? So, yeah, look it up. Look it up on, on the Internet. It's wow. a robot restaurant, I think. It's, yeah, and Daniel Balud, who's the, one of the big Michelin chefs, is on the team of this. So what I'm, what I'm trying to tell you is, New technology is going to come. There's 3D printing technology now that you could 3D print food, okay? Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it's not only going to be checkout. It's going to be end-to-end food production, and it's going to open up some really cool renaissance for food. You know, yeah. um, anyone, you know food is a $4.7 trillion business. Technology right. is only a $400 billion business. We could be creating amazing organic foods, really artfully, really well-done foods. I think everyone should go into the food business, by the way. So I think the automation will put a lot of the nonsense in the background and probably, if it's done right, bring better food to us, especially if it's organic and non-GMO. So I think the checkout counter is only the beginning of it. It's going to let people actually – it's going to remove the burden of nonsense and force people to be more creative, and people want to be robots, won't want to have a job. Got it. And you're you're, you're spot on. I love this. I love this. You know why I could talk to you for hours? You've – I mean, you've said so much. This has been a fantastic interview. I've loved having you on the air. Um, you know, Josh, you, if, you know, and Valerie, um, 30 seconds. If you got any questions real quick to ask um, Shiva? Yeah, Valerie, go ahead. I know you have something. No, go Thank ahead. you. I'm done. Go ahead, Josh. Or Valerie, go I'm, ahead. I'm actually really fascinated with your, your question and what does it mean to be a human being. And so what I'm understanding is that, that like, for example, the, you know, any kind of um, organization teaches their employees how to act if A, then B, then C. So they're not really having any of their own um, thoughts. They're just, um, like you said, becoming ro- robots. So how does education change something like that so that people learn to think for themselves and be individuals? Well, sure, so you I have mean, to understand, I mean, it's a longer, longer discussion. The simple version of it is, you know, the military-industrial-academic complex wants robots, human or silicon, okay? 
because it's based yeah. on control. Um, remember, go back to centralization and decentralization. Borgs, remember, like from uh, Star Trek, the Borgs have a yeah. central computer which tells everyone what to do. Harvard University is a central computer, and it tells everyone this is racism. Dot dot dot. Guy says this this this. White supremacist, Nazi, racist. Oh, he says like this. Good student, right? Give him an A, right? So it's all centralized control, and that's robotics, right? That's uh, so it comes yep. to control. Um, the inverse of that is what occurred in the Renaissance, right? People asked questions. They knew some questions had no answer. Some questions were uncertain that you had to learn how to live with uncertainty or you'd have to discuss it. You'd have to deliberate it. You know, you have to use a Socratic approach that requires using your freaking thing called the mind. Right. And, and being <laughs> able to understand that truth is not something that's immediately revealed. It takes time. It unfolds on itself. You know, this is uh, that we shouldn't have the hubris to think we know it all. Um, real science teaches you that, right? Fake science teaches you, oh, Monsanto and uh, Monsanto's foods are the same as organically, organically grown foods. No, they aren't. You can't make a little change to a gene and think it's not going to affect anything. But that's what we've created. We've created pay-to-play science. We've created centralized authority. And if you don't step in line, you get screwed, you know? So that's why yep. we need independence. That's why it's called the Declaration of Independence which is a very powerful thing that these founders did, Declaration of Independence. It says that we are given inalienable rights by our creator. This is a source of being a human being. We are soul. That's why, you know, our slogan is be the light. You know, the Eastern traditions talked about going within you and finding God within you. And ultimately, man, I don't want to get too spiritual here, um, but it's about finding out that you are a spark of God and standing right. up on our own two feet. And, and, and that's what it ultimately comes down to. Otherwise, we are all freaking robots. Really and ultimately, are, that's really what the struggle is about. Incredible. You, Incredible. That's what this struggle is ultimately all about. Do you want to be a robot, or do you want to, uh, or do you want to be a full being? I mean, I could argue a lot of animals are far more human beings than humans. You know, they have instinct, they have intuition, they think. You know, they can sense things, they can sense your emotions. They're sensitive. Um, that's what it's about, you know, and, and that's what the found, I mean, it's called the declaration of independence. It's not called the declaration of being a Democrat or the declaration of being a Republican. It's called the declaration of independence. 100%. At, and, and, and then we want, have the right I to abolish our government. Said, also. Beautifully said. Thank you. What were you saying about abolish? What, that's the goal. What, what were you saying about abolish? Well, that, well, you know, people like Jefferson knew, I think on Monticello, I forget where, or the Jefferson Memorial, um, the, yeah. I, I don't know the exact words, but it says, you know, as a, you know, when you're a man or when you're a boy, you have a jacket and it, you know, and as you grow, you can't wear the same jacket you wore as a boy when you become an adolescent, nor can you wear that same jacket when you become a full grown adult, right? So everything evolves. So even the laws that we have today may not be viable, you know, when, like, you know, now we have to think about Facebook and Google and, and you know, we, we, we have to redefine our laws because the legal system never took into account um, these kinds of hypermedia, right? So right. that's why you need enlightened, you need people who are in touch with something within themselves to govern. It can't be a bunch of morons because of the, oh, the you're founders absolutely of the country right. quite, yeah, yeah, it, it, Americans are, are a great people, you know. That's why my parents left India. And we do not deserve these scumbag politicians. They're all scum, man. 
They don't know anything. They don't produce anything. They know nothing. So true. Except Josh, for you. Go ahead. You know, that's why, that's why they hate Donald Trump so much, because the guy actually knows something. He's a brilliant guy. He's smart. Exactly. Spot on. Yeah. Josh, yeah. go ahead. Yeah, hey, just to ask another quick question. This is going to go back to you talking about your you know, origin story. I, I guess more of a talk, – talk about why it, it always seems that the, the immigrant way and, – and, and I'm a third-generation immigrant from Eastern Europe, but um, talk, talk about how it seems that immigrants' real way of success uh, in America has been education, and, and obviously it was for you. you. Speak on that a little bit and the importance that that serves our country uh, as well as immigrants in general. Well, look, there's a very, very famous Hindu mythology story, okay? You know, the Hindu religion is all, there's one God, but it has these different uh, manifestations of God in different energies. So one of the energies of God uh, is called the goddess of knowledge and education. That's the goddess Sarasvati, S-A-R-A-S-V-A-T-I, Sarasvati, which is the goddess of knowledge and education. And there's another goddess called the goddess of wealth you know, money, which is Lakshmi, L-A-K-S-H-M-I. So the story goes, how do you become wealthy? Well, you can go pray to Lakshmi all day, give me money, give me money, give me money, right? What well, doesn't work, it turns out it doesn't work that well. The real secret to wealth is you go and pray to the goddess of knowledge and education. Why? Because the goddess, of Lakshmi, the goddess Lakshmi, the goddess of wealth, is extremely jealous of the goddess of education and knowledge. So if you go pursue knowledge and education, wealth will automatically follow, right? Because wealth is uh, – the goddess of wealth is jealous of the goddess of knowledge. So that's like this very interesting principle um, because, if, you know, I learned a program when I was a 14-year-old kid. My great-grandfather was a slave, an indentured servant. You know, that was code word for slave who went from India to Burma on, on a ship, and then he had to work his way off. A very frugal guy. I remember 93 years old in the fields you know, working his butt off, ripped, you know, muscularly, but he would be very frugal with his money, you know? Um, but when it came to education, he would spend like crazy books, you know, anything you wanted to learn because he abided by this principle because once you get knowledge, it's something someone cannot take away. I learned a program when I was 14 years old. I didn't need to go to MIT guys. Um, universities, education is the key. You learn how to do plumbing. You learn how to do electricity. You learn how to program a computer. You learn how to, how to do blockchains, right? Uh, you learn how to write. You learn how to use video equipment, right? You, that's power. Knowledge is truly power. Um, being an a, a adult moving around money doesn't really teach you a lot except how to move around money, you know? You're not really adding value to yourself or anyone, any other human being. So education has always been not only wealth, money, but the, been the real source of human. I mean, just look. At, I mean, I, I started this conversation telling you, look around everything we have. I mean, I'm, I just came into my house. Everything I have here was created by somebody. I have Shaker Furniture. Shakers were amazing artisans, right? You have the security yeah. system in your home. This wasn't done by politicians. Politicians no. create nothing. It was created by some guy, you know, uh, trying to get this filament to work over and over and over and over and again, right? The guy who created the light bulb, right? Some guy went yeah. over and over and over again trying to understand Bernoulli's principle. Every time I drive in, uh, ride in a plane, I'm amazed. I, I have massive uh, positive optimism of what human beings can do. Think about an airplane, man. We get off in one location. It lands precisely in another. 
We thought we couldn't overcome gravity. We didn't think we could overcome darkness. Humans do that. We do incredible things, but it's not done by scumbag politicians. It's done by people who work their asses off. I knew what it took to create email. I worked until 2 in the morning. Things didn't work over and over and over and over again, working your ass off. That's being human. That's a human being. People who lead who don't want to work hard are not human beings. They're exploiters. Yeah. No, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, know, the whole part of the American dream is is what you just described. You know, working from from the bottom, working your way up, building an empire, working your ass off. You know, and and doing it the right way. I mean, you know, that's that's the way you know America is about. It's not about entitlement. It's not about taking other people what other people have earned, like Bernie and some of these other crazy left wing nuts want to want to want to discuss, um, you know, and uh, I'm so glad you're running. I am, I like you are, I'm one of you. I'm a huge fan. I absolutely am. You are absolutely beyond brilliant. You are a, a huge Guys, we have profound. to win in Massachusetts. We have to yes. win. I'll tell you why we have to win. It's not a choice. We have to and win tell, because, by the way, tell us some um, of the first things you'll do when you get in office. I want to know that because we have about we have about uh, well, well, four the, about three minutes. Things, but but hurry though. Yep. First thing is we uh, there's a whole set of we're going to have a town hall in Massachusetts. I think it's in August 21st or something. We need to get rid yep. of what are called GPO kickbacks. There are these group purchasing yep. organizations. We take a 32 cents drug and crank it up to like thirty two thousand dollars. It's a whole insider trading system. Very that those should be completely outlawed. That'll save us about three quarters of a trillion dollars in healthcare. Number one bill that I pass in Congress. NGPO. You can look it up. GPO kickbacks. Number number two, um, we need to go after academics who've done fake science. There's a lot of garbage science that's done there. Just like we throw Wall Street traders, we need to uh, do investigations on these and actually have indictments. Uh, third thing, we need to investigate Harvard for racketeering. Harvard University should be defunded. And all of Absolutely. it should be put on hold. Yeah. So these are the, you know, these are the basic things because um, those affect a bunch of things. Obviously, term limits. Um, uh, we need to, you, we need to tax the, not just the endowments, but the hedge fund earnings of the big academic institutions. Put that into a fund and immediately fund uh, both tech schools in inner cities. There's more than enough money. I mean, if you funded Harvard's um, hedge fund income. You know, um, and you put the, you'd have billions of dollars, uh, tens or hundreds of billions of dollars to fund Votech schools. So Votech schools, you know, you go after prevention, you go, you lower the cost of healthcare by GPO kickbacks, and you obviously enforce um, term limits, and and you really really fight for that, particularly in Congress. I love it. I love it. And uh, you know, we have about thirty seconds. I uh, I'm gonna have you back on very soon, uh, God. You've been on for almost two hours. I love every second of our yeah, conversation. Yeah, let, let me finish up because I got to get to bed. Um, so here's the bottom line: everyone should go to Shiva S H I V A for Senate dot com. Um, everyone who probably is listening is works for a living, so we're not expecting people to. Uh, we, we're not hiring any paid people. Every, all of our volunteers are doing it because they believe in us. A simple way people can help us is go to Shiva for Senate, get a Road Warrior kit. And what it is is you get two magnetic signs uh, for your car, a bumper sticker, and drive around with it wherever you are. And basically, the road warrior kid has a picture of me and Warren and says only a real Indian can defeat the fake Indian. And it pretty much says it all. That symbol is lightning in a bottle. And for 15 bucks plus some shipping, you uh, politically weaponize your car. 
Um, so Absolutely. as you're driving around, you're helping our campaign. So everyone should get those Road Warrior kits. 100%. And this, this, this is national. This matters to us national because we, we want guys like you in the Senate. We want guys like you fighting for us. We want guys with profound and, and uh, unbelievable background and resumes like yourself uh, to be in there serving for us because, I mean, that, it, it, let's face it, it, it's a new it's a new era. It's what we need. And uh, please, if you have any other businesses to promote, go ahead. Um, no problem. No, the only the business I want to promote is the American worker. You know, the American working people, yep. which is what I am, which is what, you know, everyone who's listening is. Um, yep. There's a huge opportunity for a new renaissance. And, yep. and Massachusetts Absolutely. was a cradle of the American Revolution. And yep. our defeating Elizabeth Warren here um, yep. can really help accelerate that. Yep. So. Yeah, Shiva, Shiva, absolutely. 100%. Thank you very much, I guys. want to thank you. Yeah, and I'll, and I'll have you back on very soon, okay? Yeah, yeah, that's great. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Be well, guys. Good night. Bye-bye. All right, take care. Have a great night. Like, what a great interview. He, uh, he is fantastic. I... Uh, uh, he is something that is absolutely incredible. I mean, what what an interview. I do want to say thank you to all my listeners. Uh, you can visit the thedonaldjtrumpstore.com. Again, that's thedonaldjtrumpstore.com. You can visit rorysodder.tv. You can also visit getyourapp.com. Again, that's getyourappbuilt.com. The Next Gen USA, our new media company, is coming out literally I have just finished the last parts of coding it and building the technology. So it is done pretty much. So you can count on it by the end of this week at the latest, uh, the end of the weekend. So I can say that with confidence and I'm very happy. Valerie, a couple seconds, go ahead, promote, and then Josh. Thank you. And Gianni. Um, This was an incredible, incredible interview. Um, He's blown me away. And if I could vote in Massachusetts, I would. Um, my, my book is uh, Backyard Jihad. You can get it on Amazon.com. Yep. Absolutely. Gianni, go ahead, brother. Yeah, you can follow me at Gianni Rodriguez with a Z dash Paris. And again, on Facebook, Gianni Rodriguez with a Z dash Paris. Josh, go ahead, buddy. Yeah, and follow me on Instagram at J-O-S-H-H-L-A-V-A-T-Y. Excellent. I want to thank everybody, all my listeners, and uh, everyone for tuning in tonight. Uh, We will be back tomorrow with a huge show and a big guest lineup. I do want to apologize to Joel Block. Block. We did not get to him tonight. Uh, We will have to reschedule him. Uh, He's a very important figure and very good friend of the show, and uh, he has a lot of great knowledge that everybody enjoys. So we'll get him back on soon. Um, I can't wait to see you all tomorrow. Uh, God bless everybody. Have a great night. Cheers.